Give me those. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Christmas is a celebration of Christ coming to earth by taking the form of his creation as a baby. This was all to save his people from their sins. But Father, this story does not begin in the Gospels, but it begins in the book of beginnings. It begins in the book of Genesis. As Christ is the new and the better Adam. Lord, you created a perfect world, and the crown jewel of your creation is mankind, who is the only part of your creation who was made in your image. And Adam and Eve, our first parents, were created in your image. But yet, Father, Adam and Eve rebelled against your law. They, they sinned against you. And Lord, after Adam and Eve rebelled, you began working all things together to redeem your people. So the first prophecy of Christ we find is in the book of Genesis 3 and 15, where your word says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The seed of the woman is a prophecy about the one who was born of a woman who will be wounded by the enemy but in the end, will crush Satan. And Lord, we know that this seed was Christ. The first glimpse of the gospel was then seen in the following verses in that chapter in Genesis. When Adam and Eve recognized their nakedness, they created garments made of fig leaves to cover their sin in the presence of a holy God. But you, Lord, like all other human attempts to cover sin before you, it always falls short. So, Father, as we read throughout Scripture after that fall in Genesis, we see your story of redemption being unfolded. And, Lord, we see that throughout all of the Old Testament, you sought to restore the relationship with your children who had destroyed it with the rebellion of sin. And Lord, we saw in, when the law was given in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, we saw the sacrificial system of a perfect lamb to atone for the sins of the people. But Lord, this system of sacrifices that we read, that, that we read in the book of Leviticus is but a shadow of the final sacrifice to come. And their final sacrifice was Christ. Christ being the second person of the Trinity came to earth to redeem those who are lost. Christ is the new and better Adam who was tempted in every way yet without sin. The virgin birth is critical to the story of redemption as in Adam all died. And as Christ was born of a woman, yet conceived through the Holy Spirit, he was both fully God and fully man. So today, Lord, we celebrate the birth of the one born to die as the ultimate purpose for him was the cross. This Christ that we celebrate today wasn't just without sin, but he fulfilled the entirety of the law. 
Christ became the final sacrifice for his people as the perfect sacrificial lamb dying on the cross for the payment of sins. And Christ resurrecting on the third day shows that the sacrifice had appeased you, Lord. And Lord, because of this, all those who repent and turn away from their sins and believe this gospel, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, will be saved. Lord, this is the true meaning of Christmas. It is not about the gift. It is not about the gathering. It is not about the sentimentality, especially of our American culture with carols that speak nothing of the significance of this day. The Lord, Christmas is about the God-man, Jesus Christ. Fully God, fully man, being born into this world to save people from their greatest need. And that greatest need is to be at peace with you. To be reconciled to a holy God whose wrath remains on those who don't believe. So Father, as we meditate on this, may you work this into all of our hearts and may we never lose what Christmas is truly about. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Amen. Man, let's turn to uh, Matthew, the first chapter, our, uh, our short sermon here. We're going to look at uh, Jesus is the true Savior of Christmas. I put the word true in there because that means that they are false saviors. And I put the word Savior in there because there's only one Savior. And as fallen people, as sinful people, we have to constantly be reminded that there's only one truth and there's only one Savior. We have to remind ourselves of that. We don't just have to remind our children, but even as adults, we have to remind ourselves also that there's only one Savior. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. I was thinking this morning, uh, I had to go to Jacksonville and pick out some of it because he had, a, he had a flat tire that he got last night. Some people will fall to bed. Oh, why did this have to happen on Christmas? You know, some people will feel that way. Why is this happening? This, this is supposed to be the most wonderful time of the year. Isn't that what the song says? The most wonderful time of the year. When magic happens, I guess his tire magically went flat. <laughs> when they talk about Christmas magic and all that worldly secular uh, stuff, but we uh, we should know better than that, right? So it says here in Matthew eight uh, one, beginning at verse eighteen. This is after the genealogy of Christ. It says, "Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows." After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, he was found with a child of the Holy Spirit. 
And Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take you marry, to take you rather marry your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. <laughs> then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her until she had brought forth her firstborn son, and he called his name Jesus. I mean, we have here in uh, Matthew his account of the birth of Jesus. And Matthew's story focuses on Joseph. We look at Luke's account, Luke's account focuses on Mary and also her cousin Elizabeth and the birth of John the Baptist and also uh, Zacchaeus. And um, so we have those two main accounts of the birth of Christ. Uh, the Gospel of John focuses on uh, the incarnate word uh, dwelling uh, among us. So here we see the focus is on uh, Joseph. And we see some noble qualities about him in this passage. One, we see his tender consideration for her because she was with child and he hadn't known her yet. But yet she was with child and he was very uh, sensitive to her. Uh, situation, so he he shows some uh, compassion and consideration uh, for the uh, mother of his child, and he also showed a willingness to bear ridicule. Because you have to understand, in uh, ancient cultures, uh, you didn't have women having children out of wedlock like we do now, where uh, some sixty percent of babies are born to unwed mothers. It's just a common occurrence now. Uh, but in, in ancient times, uh, generally speaking, uh, women had children when they were married. They didn't go around having uh, different baby daddies and all this stuff as, as we say now. So there was some shame in the fact that uh, uh, Mary was pregnant. She was birthed of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph did not want to make her a public example. He wanted to, as the scripture says here, put her away secretly. So we see some very noble characters about him. Now, we know little else about Joseph because the scriptures don't uh, speak much of him. Uh, we know that it is uh, Christ is, in essence, his adopted son because he wasn't born of a union between Joseph and Mary. And that is very important to understand. Some people may uh, wonder, why is uh, the virgin birth so important. And I'll explain to you just in case you don't know. 
Christ had to be born of a virgin so that he would not be born in sin or to sin. Because had he been born of Joseph and Mary, Joseph and Mary are both sinners. Okay? The Bible says he became sin who knew no sin. Now, when it says Christ became sin, it doesn't mean that he became a sinner. It means he was born in, in, in sinful flesh, yet he did not sin himself. So him being conceived of the Holy Spirit meant that he would not be conceived in sin. Everyone else is conceived in sin. Now, David himself said in Psalm 51 that in sin did my mother conceive me. So Christ, in order to be the sinless sacrifice uh, of God, sinless lamb, he had to be born of the Holy Spirit. And so that is what made uh, his virgin birth uh, so important. Now, the word gospel means uh, good news. And we see hints of it in how that good news occurs in this passage. When you contemplate the names which the Son of Man was to be called, first we see the name Jesus, and we see the name Emmanuel. So we see two primary names here. And also something to note is that during this time, people didn't have surnames. They didn't have necessarily last names. You know, Jesus' first name wasn't Jesus, and his last name wasn't Christ. Okay? So Christ wasn't his last name. Uh, Christ was a title, Messiah. Uh, that's where it came from. But we see two distinct names in here that point to the gospel, Jesus and Emmanuel. So the big idea as we look at this sermon today, we're, we're going to consider those two names closely. One name describes his office. An office is what he has to do. And the other name describes his nature, meaning who he is. So one name describes his office. Okay? That means what he has to do, what he has come to do. And the second name describes his nature. All the names of Jesus either uh, describe his offices or his nature. Okay? Who he is and what he does. That is the most important thing about Christ that unfortunately is absent in a lot of our churches is who Jesus is and what he has come to do or what he did. He has an office. Jesus also serves as a prophet, priest, and king. There are types and shadows in the Old Testament who point to this. Moses is a type of Christ because Moses was the prophet of God to his people. But Moses was also the leader of God's people, so he, he functioned as the king of Israel, though not an official king, but he was their leader. And he was also the priest who interceded for Israel. You read the, the uh, especially in the book of Exodus and Numbers, uh, when God was angry at his people, um, Moses came and interceded for them. He interceded them in a priestly way. And also Christ is our intercessor. He intercedes for us, as Hebrews 4 says. We have a high priest who intercedes for us. So Christ serves as his offices of prophet, priest, and king. And in his nature, we see who he is as the person of Christ. And that's where 
these names represent. So names in the Bible actually meant something. Names in the Bible actually meant something. So let's look at our first principle. It says here, you shall call his name Jesus. You see that in verse 21. And you have to understand, they didn't have ultrasound during this time. Okay? Uh, what, two, three months in, they didn't take Mary to a doctor and <laughs> had the ultrasound and they had a big gender reveal party. They didn't know what their child was going to be until the child was born. So think about that. They probably had names already picked out. So the angel told her that you shall bring forth your son and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, Jesus is a very historical name. First of all, it is a very common Jewish name. And it is often given in memory of Joshua. Because Joshua, if you remember in the Old Testament, you have the book of Joshua. Joshua was one of the faithful of God in the wilderness. And Joshua was the one who led Israel into the promised land. The Hebrew form of the name Jesus is Joshua. Okay? So Joshua in the Old Testament is Jesus in the New Testament. And Joshua was a type of Christ also. Now, it's interesting to compare these two figures in history, in Jewish history and biblical history, because Joshua led the nation of Israel into the promised land, which was Canaan. Jesus leads the people of God into the promised land, which is heaven. Because the promised land in the Old Testament is a picture or a foreshadowing of heaven. That's what that story is all about. Going into the promised land, crossing the, uh, the Jordan River was a picture of the saints' entrance into heaven. So Joshua led God's people into the promised land, just as Christ leads us into the promised land. So what's the significance of this name? The name Jesus or Joshua means God is Savior or God is saves. So the son of Mary was rightfully called God as Savior. And why? Look at what the scripture says. It says, you shall call his name Jesus. That next word is for. For is a causation clause. That means because. So for means because. Why are you to call him Jesus? Because what is he going to do? Save his people from their sins. So Jesus will be saving people. That is why his name is Jesus. That is why he was given that name. And that is why Jesus came. He came for one mission, and that was to do what? Save. Not to just feed the poor clothe the naked, as the, the, the social justice people say. You know, not to just care for the, as they say, marginalized groups of people. And to accept people in their sinful state as they are and not call them to repentance. No, Jesus came to save people from their what? Sins. Not save them from poverty. Not save them from a hard life. Not save them from difficulties and disappointments that we're going to have in this life. Jesus came to save us from the greatest sickness 
that fallen man has, and that is sin. Sin is man's greatest malady. Sin is man's greatest trouble. Sin is man's greatest grief. Man needs to be saved from their sins. And no one can save themselves from their sins. Although people try. People try to save themselves all the time. So, Jesus came to save them from these aspects of sin. Number one, the guilt of sin. By offering his blood as the atonement for their sins. So, Jesus came to save people from the guilt of sin. Do you all know that sin brings guilt? Paul says in Romans 5 and 8, But God demonstrates his love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Sin brings guilt. Sin brings shame. Our culture has done its best. To, the, the secular culture has done its best to get rid of shame. People have no shame anymore. I was looking at an award ceremony a couple weeks ago of one of these uh, actresses um, pregnant. And on the stage, she had her belly showing. I mean, that's, you know, that's far beyond the pale. You had people post, women posting on magazine covers showing their preg pregnancy bellies. There's nothing private and, and sacred anymore in our culture. Why? Because shame has been dealt away with. In our culture, you can't be, you can't shame people anymore for the stupidity that they do. You must celebrate the stupidity. But shame is actually good. Shame shows us, look, that's not right. That's wrong. That's just stupid. And so what our world tries to do is try to get rid of that, that guilt. But let me tell you something. No matter how much you try to mask it. You can't get rid of that guilt conscience. Those people who try to erase shame from the culture, they feel the most shame because they're suppressing something that is inherent to our sinful nature. What is inherent to our sinful nature? Shame. When we do something wrong, we feel bad. Unless God hardens our hearts and gives us over to a dull conscience, which is actually not a good state to be in, when you're just so indifferent that you don't care anymore, that's not a place you want to be. It means God has turned you over to a hardened heart. But Jesus came to save us from that guilt. The only way you can get rid of that guilt is to come to Christ. You can't get rid of it through drugs. You can't get rid of it through sex. You can't get rid of it through social media, likes and shares and retweets, retweets and, and, and heart emojis and all that stuff. You, you, you can't get rid of it that way. Number two. He came to save us from the power of sin by sending his spirit to help his people break sin's dominion. Because sin is a ruler. Sin is a cruel taskmaster. Sin is a slave master. I said this last Sunday in church that, that sin never relents. It never backs down. You see people that uh, reject God and deny God, they just get farther and farther away 
They get deeper and deeper into sin and into rebellion. And we say, oh, when they hit rock bottom, I'm going to tell you something, there's no rock bottom for sin. Sin can lead you to death. The Bible says the ultimate wage of sin is death. There's no such thing as rock bottom. That's a psychological term that, that psychologists use, but there's no such thing as a person in rock bottom. You're already at rock bottom when you're without Christ. Because, you know, we, we have this myth of thinking that, oh, if they just, they just have a bad car accident or break their leg or end up on the streets, they'll come to their senses. No, they won't. Don't assume that. You just assume those things. Sin is more powerful than that. Paul says in Romans 8 and 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the life of sin and death. You notice the correlation there. Sin and death, life and free. When you're in Christ, you're free. You're not in bondage to the power of sin. We have the presence of sin within us, but we're not slaves to that sin. For those who are not in Christ, guess what? They are in their sins. And sin has so much power over them. So Christ came to save us from that. That, that, that power, that, that grip. Many people try to get rid of sin by doing more sin. They try to sin to get out of sin. They're in a sinful marriage, so they go and commit adultery. They commit more sin. And then they take that, then they go back and lie to their wife. We're just committing more sin. They're sinning in order to escape sin, but they're still trapped in that sin. Because it's the great lie. The great lie is, oh man, you can you can you can stop whenever you want to. That's the great lie. That is not how sin works. Sin increases and it waxes more and more. Unless you turn back to Christ. I've seen it happen to many people who walked away from the Lord, who rejected Christ. And you can see, and you know, I'm not talking about as far as like getting on drugs or being on skid row, but, but, but just the disposition there, the quality of life, is, it, it just deteriorates. Because that power of sin has gripped them so much. But guess what? Paul says here in Romans 8 and 12, 13, he says, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. And he means a physical death and also a spiritual death. The flesh is our sinful nature. You live according to the flesh, you will die. You will not flourish. But rather, you will perish. You will not have a vibrancy of life. You will not have a generally good well-being if you live according to your sinful flesh. This devil will tell you, live it up, man. You only live once. Go out there and manifest. 
Go out there and be your best self. Go out there and be the best version of yourself. You can never be the best. How, how, how you know? I, I heard someone say that in a movie that they were looking at. I think it's the best man. I remember the final series or whatever, and, and one of the characters saying, um, you know, I want to be my best self to you. Like, how do you know, how do you know when you reach your best self? I mean, just think about that. How do you know when it actually happens? You don't know. When you're going to reach your best self. That's not what it's about. And that's not going to save you from the power of sin. Paul said, live into that. Live in that way you will die. But if you, by the Spirit, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Next, Jesus saves us from the consequence of sin. And what is the consequence of sin? The wrath to come. We're saved ultimately from the wrath of God. Those who are unsaved are still under the wrath of God. The wrath of God remains on them. The wrath of God remains on everyone who is not a believer. Paul said again, I read this earlier, Romans 5 and 9, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We're saved from the wrath of God. We're saved from those full consequences. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians verse 9 and 10. He says, for they themselves declare concerning what manner of entry we had to you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead even Jesus, listen to this who delivers us from the wrath to come the ultimate consequence of sin is the wrath of God being poured out Hell is God's wrath against sin. And hell shows you how serious sin is. Think about this. Hell is eternal torment. It never ends. It is a conscious, felt torment forever where there will be no end to the suffering. The scriptures describe it as a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know how you're in such agony sometimes you kind of grit your teeth? That's how hell is going to be. Forever. They're not going to take 15-minute breaks every hour and a 30-minute lunch. No, it's going to be eternal conscious torment. Forever and ever. That is how much sin costs. Your sin can cost you eternity in hell. That's the wrath of God. Hell is going to be the wrath of God poured out against all sin. That's a bad place to be in. It's not going to be some great big party. Like they show, they show intelligence shows that yeah, you get down that party with Satan. No, you're not because Satan is going to be being tormented too. Ultimately, Jesus came to deliver us from the presence of sin. 
when we depart to be with the Lord. John MacArthur, I, I quote this a lot, John MacArthur said the greatest thing about heaven is that there will be no tears. That's great. There won't be any tears. None. None of the ravages of sin. None of the miseries that sin brings. Because of sin, we die. Y'all know that? Because of sin, we die. Because our first pair of sins, we die. We get sick. We have really, really cold weather like this. <laughs> you know, we have hurricanes and earthquakes because even creation was corrupted by the fall. Do you know that before God judged the earth with the flood in Genesis 9, Noah, that if it never rained upon that, that was the first time it rained, the earth watered itself by dew. But that rain was a sign of judgment. Because before that, it, it didn't rain on the earth. That shows you how corrupt sin is. But guess what? Jesus came to say it was ultimately from the presence of sin. This is the Revelation 7 right here. This is what uh, John said. Revelation 7, 13 says, Then one of the elders answered, said to me, Who are those arrayed in white robes? Where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, I like this right here. These are the ones who came out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. It's going to be heaven. Sin brings sorrow. Sin brings tears. And I, what, what about being too hot in the summertime like it is here in Alabama? <laughs> 98 degrees, 100 degrees. Uh, 90% humidity. You can feel the humidity just by looking outside. No, there's going to be no sin. That's what Christ came to save from. So the name of Jesus is a very encouraging name for sinners who are heavy laden with burdens. His name should be very sweet to us as Believers. The name of Jesus should bring us great joy. Jesus said, Come to me, Matthew 11 and 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest to your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the Jesus. And souls who desire salvation can draw near to the Father with confidence through Christ. They can draw near to him. And so next we see, we see who he is, now we see what he does. It says, 
They shall call his name what? Emmanuel. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, verse 23, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Which translates God with us. We see here a quote from Isaiah 7 and 14. I want y'all to think about this. This was about 700 years before Christ was born. Isaiah prophesied that he would be born. Then see Isaiah 7 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called at the Emmanuel. People just think about this. This is 700 years. Before Christ was even born, this shows us what the word of God is true. That we ought to trust God's word. Every promise, every prophecy that God has made has come to pass, and the future prophecies will come to pass. No one throughout history from that prophecy until Christ was born had any control of any events that happened in the world except for God. 700 years before Christ was born, it was prophesied that he was going to be born. Not only that he was going to be born, but that he was going to be born of a virgin. Who would know that but God? Who could make that happen but God? Nobody. 700 years. We can't even control what's going to happen tomorrow. Now, we have in our mind things that can happen tomorrow, but we don't know. Wake up with a flat tire. Be late for work because of traffic when it's usually not that bad. We have no control over the next hour. God, the one who controls time. And his son into time, just at the right time. The time that scripture has prophesied. That just blows my mind every time I think about it. So a virgin gave birth, and his name will be called Emmanuel. Now, what's the significance of his name? It says here, Emmanuel literally means God is with us. God is with us. And this name describes the Messiah's nature, that he is deity. That Jesus is deity, that he is with us. He is the God-man. So those in the first century, when they saw Jesus, they saw God. Because John tells us in John, the third chapter, and they beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among men. We see tabernacle among them. He dwelt among them. They saw him. They saw God with us. What are some other aspects of Christ's nature? Isaiah 9 and 6 says he is the mighty God and he is the everlasting Father. Amen. Yes, he is. He is God possessing the glory of God. He is the great I am who shared in the glory of the Father prior to his incarnation. Jesus said in, uh, I think it's uh, John 8, around 56, 57, he told those Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am, meaning that he is God. And of course, they took up stones to stone him because he had committed the sin of blasphemy by saying that he was God. But he says, before Abraham was, I am. John 17 and 5, when Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer, he prayed and asked God to return him to the glory that he had with him. 
This means that Christ always existed. He didn't just come into being when he was born. Christ always was. The Bible tells us in John 1 and 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So Christ has always existed. He is the eternal God. He is the eternal God. He is equal with God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is equal with God the Father. He's not lesser. He is equal with God. But he was willing to humble himself. And in Christ dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. All the attributes of God are found in Christ. By Christ's word, the worlds were created. How did Christ demonstrate that he was God? When he healed people, when he did those miracles. Those miracles were not miracles for miracles sake. Those miracles were meant to show that Christ is God. When he raised people from the dead, only God could do that. He was showing his power over creation by stealing the waters. Because he is the one who created the world, so he has the power to tell the waters to be still. Peace be still. He's the only one that could do that. Because he is God. So he says, Emmanuel, God with us, he demonstrated that in his earthly life. So this man who was born, this baby, he was born fully man. And despite what the song Mary had a little lamb said, Jesus didn't cry because he was a baby. <laughs> Doesn't it say that he didn't, that there was no crying? Like, oh, he's just, <laughs> who knows babies didn't cry? <laughs> if not, something's wrong with that baby. Those who have children know, like, babies cry. Jesus, look, he was fully man. He cried. He didn't sin, but he cried as every little baby does when they're born. <laughs> okay, he was still the God man. But he was humble. He was about pleasing the Father. And he was about saving people from their sins. As I go ahead and close, I just want to impress this on your mind and in your thinking. Our culture has wandered so far away from gospel truth. But the weird, the funny thing is, people still say Merry Christmas mm -hmm. on this day. Now, we say Happy Holidays, you know, to cover basically Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's Day. People say, you know, Happy Holidays. But on this day, I, you know, I was looking at some a little bit on Facebook this morning. Most of the people on there who are fans of this who are not Christians. Yet they still said, Merry Christmas. Why is that? We can't escape the fact that this day is about Jesus. The word Christmas literally means Christ's mass. That's what it means. Christ's mass. This day is about Jesus. It is about Christ. And the world can't escape it, although they, they try. You see neighborhoods festering with bright lights. 
Why do they do it? Because it's Christmas. They don't do it because it's holidays. <laughs> Why do people buy trees? Because it's, they say I'm buying a what? Christmas tree. They don't say I'm buying a holiday tree. Hmm. They're going to buy a Christmas tree. Companies have what kind of parties? Christmas parties. <laughs> your favorite, what are your favorite Christmas sweater or the ugly Christmas sweater? You can't escape the name. Christmas means the worship of Christ. That's what Christ Mass means, worship of Christ. Now, it has been largely stripped of its true message. Although it has, Christmas celebration is still a major part of our culture. And what we ought to do on this day is to show people the good news of what Christmas is about. We, we've even lost it ourselves as a, as a church. The incarnation of Christ is the greatest gift ever given in the history of the universe. There's no gift. Me and my wife one day, at God's grace, allowed me that uh, Mustang, Mustang Shelby GT500. Walk out in the uh, driveway one day and see it out there with the bone wrap around it. You know, even if she does that one day, hint, hint. Uh, <laughs> even no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say, you know, even when she does that one day. <laughs> Red with the white uh, racing stripes. Yeah, even even when she does that one day, that cannot compare to the greatest gift ever in the universe. The creator of the universe, who is distinct from his creation. You have to understand he's distinct from his creation. But yet, in the manger, God wrapped up him as a gift to us in the person of Jesus Christ the redeemer of sinful creatures this great God who is transcendent humbled himself in the person of Christ he entered into human nature human culture in a animal feeding trough. Have you been to a farm before? Have you seen a feeding trough? That's what he was placed in. But that showed the humility of Christ. This king, this prophet, this priest of God came into the world more humble than anyone in human history. He humbled himself for our benefit, for our good, and for his glory. And this should be our attitude toward others as we speak the gospel. We approach them with humility. Because no one was more humble than Christ. No one will ever be more humble than him. Our humility is still masquerading in pride. Because we're proud of our humility. Our Savior came in the greatest of humility to save people from their greatest need. Always remember this, and I'll say this, we'll be done. I can't do this home enough. 
person can have their health, which is fine. A person can have material prosperity, which is fine. A person can have a beautiful family, which is great. You can have the house on the lake with the boat, the big truck, and take the nice vacations to the Caribbean And sit on the beach with the drink with the umbrella sticking out of it. <laughs> Those things are, you know, they're fine. But that's not what you need. Your greatest need is to be safe. Because you can have all that and still miss them all. And still die lost. And the Bible tells us it is appointed unto every man once to die. And after that, judgment. Christ came. Right now, he's saving. But when he comes back, he's coming back to judge. And we have to receive that gift by repenting of our sins and turn to him and being saved. Amen? Amen. Amen. We're going to stand and sing our um, 